This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What's going on, everybody? I'm Mara. And I'm Tez. And welcome back to Sisters Who Kill. I feel like we all dream for the perfect life. The partner, the kids, the dog, the picket fence. But when things seem to start going wrong, what would you do to not give it up? If you're listening to this, you probably already know what I'm about to say, that today is the day for you to start your podcast. You have everything that you need, your computer, a little microphone, and Spotify for podcasters. It is the all-in-one platform where you can host, edit, and record your podcast and distribute it everywhere. Where you're listening right now, you can have your podcast there. I promise, for real. And it's free. And you can make some money off of your podcast for free. Free money. Free money is out there. Just go get it by starting your podcast today. I know you love that DJ, so I bought us tickets for next week. Got you a coffee, oatmeal cappuccino, right? Your bookshelf. Wow. You've got a really, really great taste. Let's spend the day together. I've got it all planned out. Kindness. Now that's sexy. Try it for yourself with compliments now on Bumble. Our players this week are Brian Hughes, our victim, and Alicia's husband, and Alicia Hughes, our murderess. Or is she? Alicia Monique Johnson was born on August 16, 1971 in Jackson, Mississippi, to her mom, Lula Johnson. Some sources say that her dad passed away when she was three years old, so we don't have much information about him. As a child, her mom described her as a child who loved to read. She would rather read than make friends or play outside. She was just, you know, a little bookworm. She was quiet and she was very smart. In junior high school, she was the top student in her class. If y'all are young people, junior high school is middle school. And she was really pretty. She was nice. She was warm. People said that she had the type of personality that you just wanted in a friend. Her high school's name was Miss Lanier High. Now, so one day she's sitting in class at Lanier High and she's staring out the window waiting on the bell to ring. You know how the school doors have that small little sliver window. She's staring out into the hallway and walks by Brian L. Hughes. Now, he walks by and catches her eye. He she catches his eye. And he kind of doubles back and looks through the window. She's cheesing. He's cheesing, and then he comes into the classroom. Don't know what the teacher was doing, but he comes into the classroom, sits down and talks to her, and that very quickly became her boo. 
Brian L. Hughes was born on January 24, 1972, to his parents, Willie Sr. and Patricia Hughes. He was one of two children. He had an older brother, Willie Jr., and he was described as a computer whiz. And Alicia would describe Brian as a spontaneous dude, just a fun person to be around, had a way of making you feel special. Now, Brian was Mr. Tall, Dark, and Handsome. He was likable. He was fun to be around, made friends easy, very athletic, which I'm sure helped with his popularity. But Brian was looking for love and that's when he saw Alicia. Now, they were both in high school, like Mariah says. They're both 17 years old. From that day he met her, they really started kicking it, talking. And as seniors in high school, Brian and Alicia were inseparable. They graduated high school, and they both enrolled into the same college, Jackson State University. Shout out to the HBCUs. Fun fact about Jackson State University, my cousin actually just became the assistant athletic director of academics at Jackson State University. So if you or your cousin and any of your little friends is an athlete at Jackson State, more than likely they're going to know my cousin. Shout out to your cousin. We're an HBCU family, okay? Okay. But that's how how it is, though. Like, you go to the same college because cringe. I'm cringing now because hindsight, I'm an adult. But you think, like, oh, we're so in love. And in high school, we're going to go to college and we're going to do the college thing and we're going to make it, right? Mm -hmm. Of course that's what they thought. But... Mm, at the end of the first semester, Brian was like, mm, college really, really isn't for me. So he decided that he was going to drop out of college and instead he was going to enlist in the Air Force. Now he was going away to the Air Force and he already was seeing that the world was bigger than the relationship that he was in. So they decided to call it quits. I mean, the two had been on and off. They would fight, break up, but nobody really cared about that. They were young. Of course they did. And so they decided they were going to cut it off so that he could go to the Air Force. And that's what they were going to do, live life. And she finished her time at school. She decided to stay focused. And she really, really, really wanted to become a teacher. Like the little nerdy bookworm and her really wanted to inspire the little nerdy bookworm and all the kids. And that's what you wanted to teach. Teacher, right? She graduates with her bachelor's degree in education from Jackson State, and then she gets her master's degree from Mississippi College. After that, she decides that she's going to stay in her hometown of Jackson, Mississippi, and she was going to become a third grade teacher at Lee Elementary School. And she loved her job. I saw in an interview where she was like, being a teacher, it's a hard job. You have to love it. Shout out to all the teachers that just started school this week or last week. <laughs> Shout out to y'all, because it is a hard job. Girl in Atlanta, one dude I know, he's a teacher in Atlanta, and he on the first day of school, he tweeted, it's already lunchtime and three teachers done quit. That's what I was going to say. And shout out to all the teachers who still there after the first yeah. day of school. Now, while she was teaching and she was getting her adult life on track, she was dating around because she was a single lady. And after four years in the military, Brian left the Air Force and headed back home. And he got a job in Jackson as a machinist at the Delphi Packard plant, where he also worked with his dad. Now, at the plant, he was making really good money. And Everybody was like, listen, as soon as he got back in town, them two got back together. And that's how it is, though, with your high school sweetheart, like the person that you really were in love with in high school. There's always going to be that spark between the two. And you guys either act on it or you don't. So at this point, the two, they're on. Sometimes they're off, but most of the time that they're on. But the couple decided that they were really going to take their relationship seriously, take it to the next level. And then the two got engaged. I think, according to the sources in the map that we tried to do, that they got engaged around 98. And on September 1st, 
1999, Alicia had her first daughter. They got married in May of 2000. Both of them were 27 years old and they got married outside of Brian's parents' house. A nice little home wedding. The newlyweds settled. They found themselves a nice little house, a little fixer-upper, something that they could really grow into and together. And then Alicia got pregnant again and they had their second daughter in 2001. One. Now, if you asked Alicia, like, this is the life from a book, right? She has her husband. She has her kids. All she's missing right now is, like, a dog and a picket fence, you know? And they did everything together as a family. Really, on the outside, looked like they were very much in love with each other. However, Brian was a cheater. And it was very well known that he was a cheater. He has that type of personality, that spark in the personality, and it was very easy for him to get women and very hard for him to say no. Around this time in their marriage, you know, the kids are young. There's always a lot of changes when children are involved, and they were going through a bit of a rough patch. And if you ask Alicia, she thought that it was just that, just a rough patch. Every couple goes through it. You hear about it all the time. And Brian was like, yeah, it's a rough patch, but Alicia ain't all shiny and bright. Like, she's mean. She got a mouth on her. Don't let that small demeanor, that small, quiet demeanor fool you. He even told his parents, oh, Alicia is mean. I know she seems soft-spoken and sweet to y'all, but behind closed doors at the crib, she ain't that nice. Now, at one point, he even talked to his mom about moving out. It was such an emotional time for him that his mama ended up taking off work. Him and his mama ended up sitting in a parking lot and just crying and just letting him get it all out because he wasn't really sure what to do. And his mom was like, listen, you really need to reconsider moving out. I don't know if she had the conversation of you're the man of the house. I don't know. This is your family. But after that conversation, he did reconsider leaving the relationship. Now, at this point, Brian had girlfriends. Oh, yes, he did. He had, I believe, two at this point, one of whom got pregnant. Unfortunately, she ended up losing the baby. But he had an affair with one woman that lasted two years, so for quite a while. Around 2004, one of Brian's friends, Fred Clark Jr., was over at the house, and he heard Brian on the phone arguing. And, like, Brian's like, if you want something about it, like, come up, pull up. This is where I live. If you're really about about it, like... The man on the other side is like, I'm going to get you. Oh, don't worry. I'm going to get mine. Like, you you watch your back. And so the dude is like, yo, Brian, what's going on? And Brian's like, yo, I'm messing with this shawty. Me and this shawty been together for quite a minute. That's her husband on the phone. So you think you got the perfect situation, right? Like, I got a wife. You got a husband. We just do what we do. No. Because one of them are always going to find out. So apparently, this girlfriend, his shawty was paying his phone bill. And had been paying his phone bill for, like, over a year at this point. And her husband just found out. Isn't that crazy? And her husband was not happy. A girl. And don't he make good money at the plant? Why are you not paying her phone bill? Good money was, like, $60,000 with a bit of overtime. That's what they said he That's was enough for you to pay your phone bill. Not if you got a family and two kids and a mortgage and, a, you know, other phone bills. And two girlfriends. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, goodness. 
So it's June 3rd, 2004. Alicia's having a regular day with the kids. She stops by to see her stepdad at his pharmacy. She chats on the phone with Brian's cousin, Maria Smith, and they're chit-chatting for a while while the kids are playing. And then Alicia puts the two, her two daughters to bed in her bed, and she's kind of up reading, and she ends up drifting out to sleep. Now, Brian is out with his brother, Willie Jr., and they hadn't got home by the time Alicia and the kids were in bed and fell asleep. So, you know, she's reading. She dozes off around 10 o'clock, she says. Brian gets home right around 11 after being out with his brother. They started off at the Olive Garden. Then they went to a friend's house to watch a movie. Then he dropped his brother off at the house, pulled up to his mistress' house. Worse. Some people say that he just parked outside of the mistress house and talked on the phone, but they didn't physically see each other. Don't know why you'll do that. Maybe you needed a safe place to talk on the phone. Who knows? But or maybe that's the mistress that got a husband. Or maybe. After that, he pulls up to his house. He ends up getting home around 11. He enters his house. He locks his door. He sets the alarm like he normally does. He's talking on the phone. He walks to the living room and eventually sits down, relax, and ends his phone call at 11.15 p.m. At 11.20 p.m., Erica says she wakes up to a pop, pop, pop noise. And seconds later, the alarm is triggered by the front door opening. Now, Alicia's like, I couldn't even figure out if the pop, pop, pop noise was inside the house or outside the house. She was like, I'm just hearing this alarm. And that's when it made me aware that the popping noise was probably something related to my house. Like, I, I hear this loud popping and then all of a sudden my alarm's off. It's probably something going on here. Now, Brian was a pretty security conscious guy. He had the alarm set up. He always armed it and disarmed it. So for... Alicia, she's like, I'm not even thinking about dealing with the pops. I'm thinking about dealing with the alarm because it's blaring. So she's like, I get up and I look at the bedroom keypad to disarm it, but I can't figure out the damn code. I don't forgot it. So she walks down. And honestly, that happens to me. Often. I was listening to another podcast and I think it was like a couple. And, and she was like, I forget the code. I have to call you for the So <laughs> it's not unheard of. But she was like, I don't remember the damn alarm code. So she walks right. down the hallway. Her bedroom is like on the main floor or it's a ranch style house. So everything's on that main floor. But her bedroom is like right down the hall from the front door. She walks down the hallway and she says, I'm looking outside and I don't see anything. She says, I kind of glance across the foyer and I see Brian laying in the living room. His back is to me and he's facing the couch. And she was like, the first thing I felt was relief. I'm like, oh it's brian who set off the alarm she was like it's brian and he he can he can turn off the alarm but it's probably him that set off the alarm she was like it didn't enter my mind at this point that he's hurt at this point i think he's been out with his boys and they dropped his ass off drunk and he must have just like fallen out the chair or something she goes over to brian who's laying on the floor near the couch but he's not moving the alarm is still going off the front door is open she again thinking he's drunk goes over and it's like brian brian the alarm's going off i need you to help me i need you to turn it off what's the code brian what's the code 
She said, at that point, I realized he's moaning. She's like, I didn't know what to do. And she was like, I was touching him, and then I felt blood. And he was there, and he was hurt. And then now my mind starts racing. She's like, I hadn't even known he'd been shot until I was kneeling on the ground beside him. She's like, now I'm seeing the shell casings that I stepped over to get to the living room. And I'm putting things together, and I'm like, shit, somebody shot Brian. Right after this, the phone rings. It's ADT, the alarm company. Hello, ma'am, there's an alarm going off at your house. Are you okay? She answers, please help me, help me, please help me, please help me. Somebody shot my husband. He's bleeding. Please hurry. Somebody, please, somebody, please hurry. And she's, she's again thinking to herself, she was like, at this point, now that he's shot, she's like, oh, my God, somebody can be in the house. So she's like, I start looking around. I'm scanning the room that we're in. She's like, she crawled on the floor and kicked the front door shut. And she kind of reaches up to lock it. And she says she peeks out the living room window and back and forth. She goes back to Brian and she's waiting with Brian for help. Now, the police get there pretty quickly. They arrive at 1126 p.m. and they find Brian in a pool of blood in his den. Now, there was a very significant amount of blood at the scene, but EMT still did their job. They tried to resuscitate him and they were unsuccessful. He was pronounced dead at the scene and they could tell that he died because of multiple gunshot wounds. Okay, so what it seemed like to me was, you know how men are. The emergency contact for that ADT security was his mama. So when she gets the alert on her phone, her initial thing is like, oh, my gosh, is there a fire at the house? Of course, she doesn't know initially what happened. So she's calling everybody. They're pretty well connected in the force, both the police, fire. They're pretty well connected. That family is. So they're like, oh, my God. get. She's like, get to Brian's house. Get to Brian's house as fast as she could. She gets there, and she's running up to the house. His mom's name is Pat. Miss Pat runs up to the house, and at first they're not letting her to the scene of the crime. Like, she doesn't know what's happening. Where is her son? And so she screams out to Alicia, and Alicia's like, she's like, I don't know what to do. And they tell her that he's been shot. She's like, just talk to him. Do not let my baby die. Go in there. Hold him. Do whatever you have to do. Just talk to him. Whatever you have to do, just make sure that my baby does not die, right? And at this point, like, Jackson is clearly a close-knit community, and the family got there pretty fast. I mean, his mama was there, her mama was there, cousins, family, everybody was there. And because they were so close with the law enforcement, they were letting them into the home. The family was huddled up in the kitchen of the home while the scene is being processed, well, barely processed, while the scene is being just examined, and they're comforting Alicia because she's shaken up. She's crying a lot, and they did notice that she wasn't crazy hysterical or anything like that, but she was crying. And of course, you don't know how you're going to react in this type of situation. Like, I would probably be hysterical. That is who I am, and that's kind of how I react to extreme situations some people shut down and they don't react in extreme situations but alicia still was showing emotion and then all of a sudden people were like where are the kids where are the kids remember she slept with the kids in the master bedroom that night the kids are in the home in the bed knocked out sleep they carry the kids out of the house and they stay with family that night the police go back and they confirm to alicia that brian's injuries were fatal and he was pronounced dead at the age of 32 alicia's like at this point everything seems kind of surreal and she keeps thinking i don't know what to do i just don't know what to do and she was like i don't know whether to just sit here or scream or I don't, I just don't know what to do. So Brian was shot in the chest, the leg, the groin, his hand, his arm, 
total of five, six shots. Crime scene investigators, they realized that his hands were still kind of up in defense mode, which is why he was shot through one of his hands because he was holding up as if he was like pleading for his life, please, please don't shoot me. So they start canvassing the area and they find no signs of forced entry and they discover that Brian's 45 caliber gun is missing. They go and they ask Alicia, is there a gun in this house? And she says, no. And then they show her the gun holster that they find under her bed. And she says, oh, yeah, there is a gun. She takes them to the laundry room cabinet and she hands them a handgun. But this gun was not the murder weapon. Now, the police wanted an official statement from Alicia. But, you know, she was all shooken up. She wasn't really much use. And because they're so connected, like, One of the kids is a crime scene investigator. One of the kids is a state investigator. And the uncle is the police chief. Like, they are in with the force, right? And you know how the treatment is when you're in with the force. So the commander advises his unit not to talk to her because she's going through a lot. And she's going to be grieving real hard. Uh The detectives, out of respect for the family were less aggressive with the crime scene, which is why they were all able to huddle in the kitchen inside the house that the murder took place in, which is why Alicia didn't have to go straight to the station the same day. It's connections. Y'all want to know how to do it? Get connected. Also, while they were on the scene of the crime, it was pretty chaotic. And like we said, they were pretty lackadaisical. But what happened was like at the very last moment they were packing up to them they were like oh yeah sorry standard procedure alicia can we get your hand for gun residue and she was like oh sure so they tested they swiped the inside of her hands and the outside of her hands checking for gunshot residue they didn't expect to find anything obviously but you know standards and procedures they're less aggressive and they allow alicia not only to leave but they allow her to pack an overnight bag and take it with her and don't search this bag before she leaves so the police start their investigation they're like okay maybe brian is a victim of an armed robbery it's jackson murders happen let's be honest once alicia leaves and they're sitting there looking at the crime scene they're like we thought it was armed robbery because the shell casings were outside of the front door at least a few of them were but all the blood is inside of the house It was like, there's no traces of blood at the front door. There's no traces of blood in the foyer. All the blood is in the den, but not just in the den. It's all underneath his body. It just pulled around him. The physical evidence is starting to prove that Bryant is most likely shot by somebody from within inside the house. I know you love that DJ, so I bought us tickets for next week. Got you a coffee. Oatmeal cappuccino, right? Your bookshelf. You've got a really, really great taste. Really great taste. Let's spend the day together. I've got it all planned out. Planned out. Planned out. Kindness. Now that's sexy. Try it for yourself with compliments. Now on Bumble. Streaming October 6th on Paramount Plus. First place I learned about death was a pet cemetery. Dead things buried in that land would come back for something else. Something's wrong with Timmy. He needs time to adjust. That's not Timmy. Something's talking through him. Sometimes dead is better. Pet Cemetery. Bloodlines. Rated R. Streaming only on Paramount+. Instacart helps you get beer and wine delivered in as fast as an hour. So, whether you need to fill the cooler for tailgate season or... 
Fill your glass for Pinot by the fire season. You can save time by getting fall sips delivered in just a few clicks. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Must be 21 or over for alcohol delivery where available. Instacart. Add life to cart. The next morning, the day after Brian passed away, Alicia had to break to her two daughters, which at this time are three and four years old, about their dad passing away. She said that it was literally the hardest thing that she ever had to do. She told them that their dad died and that he went to heaven. And it it sucks because kids, some kids get it right off the bat and some kids don't. So she said for a while, the kids were like, well, dad's supposed to pick us up from school. What are you doing here? Or dad's supposed to do this. What's going on? Their routines are completely off now. And I got to explain to you. Right. Throughout this whole time, Brian's family really just held on to Alicia and held her tighter. I mean, they've known this girl since the two were kids. I mean, teenagers, but, you know, kids like they at least 10 years at this point. This is somebody that is a part of their family. And just like they lost their cousin, brother, son, she lost her husband and the father of her children. Now, it was said that Brian's mom was very much like anything you need, let me know. Here's the key to the house. Come over, whatever you need. We are still very much family. Now, apparently what I heard through the grapevine was that Alicia did accept all of this love for a little while, and then she kind of turned the cold shoulder. I don't know if that was just her processing grief or if she just really didn't want to deal with them anymore. I know with me, I'm a shutdowner. I go introverted. I will. You would think that I cut you off, but really, I'm just sat in a corner. What she was doing at that time, not really sure. Brian's brother, Willie Jr., he was just like, mm, I don't know. Like, Alicia, it just feels like, yeah, she's soft-spoken, but she's a mean girl. And it feels like she's playing us and playing our family. And we're trying to love on you. And it just, it's just weird. Like, you're just so calm. But if you listen back to the 911 tape, she is hysterical, even though the family never said that she was hysterical in person. The investigators, they saw out some sheetrock where a stray bullet landed, but... They don't do a super thorough search of the house. They're like, okay, we did a sweep, yada, yada, let's go. They did, however, recover a small baggie of weed, if that means anything to you. And still, Alicia's not a prominent suspect in their head. But they are thinking, they're like, okay, we do have this. We, we do know that he shot with a forty-five. We do see this empty gun holster. We don't see a um, gun for the gun holster. We don't see a forty-five, at least. I guess that's not what she turned over. And we did let her leave this house with a bag that nobody searched. So I'm not going to say she did it quite yet. I They're still trying to look on the bright side. We know this family. We love this family. Let's look someplace else. Six days after Brian passed away, Alicia finally calmed down her grief enough to finally go in and speak with detectives. And she told them the same story, that she was asleep with the kids. She heard a pop. She thought it was the AC because the AC, you know, they're in a fixer-upper house. So she thought it was the AC, but then she realized, oh, no, I think the pop is coming from inside of her house. She came. She saw Brian lying. She honestly thought that he was drunk and maybe his brother pulled him in there and didn't think too much of it until she touched him and realized that 
he was moaning and he was actually dying on the floor in front of her. The detectives, they poked holes and asked her many questions, as many as they could, in many different ways as they could. And she really stuck to her guns. She stuck to her story. And no matter what, the story never changed. Even when detectives were trying to just put the pieces together, because something about it just did not seem right. So they started asking her the normal questions. They were like, so was there any trouble in your marriage? She's like, I mean, we are going, we were going through a rough patch, but we didn't talk about getting a divorce. We didn't talk about separating or leaving each other. We just knew, we knew what we were supposed to do as husband and wife and as parents. And that was always going to be our number one goal. She even goes on to say like, you know, I know that marriage has seasons. Like she's she's not gonna sit here and pretend like it's completely a fairy tale book. She knows that it's going to be times where they're not gonna be walking around happy-go-lucky and jovial to see each other. They know that there's going to be bickering, but that doesn't mean that she didn't love him. And that doesn't mean that they weren't willing to do what it needed to do to stick beside each other and to stick this marriage out to the very end. Now, they also asked if Brian, you know, if they knew if Brian was doing anything outside of the marriage. And at the time, she didn't know. She was unaware that he was, she's like, as far as I know, he's, he goes out with his brother from time to time, but we have young kids. Like, there's no time for him to have any extramarital affairs. On June 9th, the police go back to the house to investigate. They're really trying to figure out what's going on in this crime scene they look at the blood and they're like okay there's blood in the den right now we're going with the theory that he was shot outside of the door but if he was shot with a 45 outside of the door there is no way that there wouldn't be any type of blood spatter on the walls there would at very least be a trail going from the front of the house to the den and now it's really crazy because the shell casings are outside of the door and the shell casings land where the gun was fired. So is somebody trying to set the scene? Did somebody try to collect the shell casings and run away and drop them? Then outside, there are like skid marks. And there are no time stamps on skid marks, like car skid marks, right? There are no time stamp. But did somebody try to flee the scene? Maybe, maybe not. But honestly, skid marks can happen on a driveway. Shoot, they can happen on a driveway and last there for months. So is that even relevant to the crime at all? Detectives are like, okay, let's go around and let's just talk to the people that know Brian. Let's see his coworkers, his friends, his family. They start talking to his coworkers and one of his coworkers was like, well, you know, he does have something going on with Miss So-and-so, which was another lady at the office. And Miss So-and-so was like, oh, yeah, we do. They also interviewed Brian's friend, his friend, Fred Clark. And Fred Clark told the story again about his mistress's husband calling his phone saying, oh, I'm going to get you. And him telling the mistress's husband, pull up and come see about me. So now the detectives are like, was this the revenge that that man was seeking? Now, Miss So-and-so ends up being a woman named Miss Sandra Davis. The husband of Miss Sandra Davis is Martin Davis. Turns out the reason why Martin was so pissed was because Martin and Brian, they were, I wouldn't say friends, but they were acquaintances, enough that you knew that that was my wife. So now the police are like, okay, it, was it Martin? Like, 
at this point, like, you've been in my face and I know you enough to, for you to know that that's my wife. Why the fuck are you even fucking around with her? You know what I'm saying? That's just the disrespect. So they decide that they're going to subpoena Brian's phone records. They need to get more information. They get them back and they see that he was on the phone 10 minutes before he was killed. The records show that the phone line he was on was registered to somebody named Robbie Rayford. Who the hell is Robbie Rayford? We don't know who Robbie Rayford is. They're like, okay, well, maybe Robbie is another jealous husband and somehow he found out a way to be on their cell phone. Goes to find Robbie. Robbie opens the door. Robbie is the lady's name. I love gender neutral names. Me too. So Robbie is like, oh no, Brian and I are in love. Like, real love. We've been in love and we've been messing around for about two years. Now, Robbie is the one that was pregnant and lost the baby. So... They've also gone through some real traumatic things together as a couple. And the detectives are like, okay, well, ma'am, we need to sit down and let you know this, that Brian, he's dead, and he just died a few days ago. And she is in shock. She can't believe it. Like, how could her man be gone from her just like that? Her man is not her man. And they're like, is there anything that you can tell us? Anything that might point us in the right direction? And she's like, okay, well, the last time I spoke to him was that night. I was on the phone with him and I heard him drive into his garage like he always does. I heard him beep the car alarm. I heard him walk into the house. I heard him set the alarm. He had food. He put carry out food on the table. And then he was like, all right, I'm gonna have to call you back. And my first question was, is she with you? Is she there? And then he said, I'm gonna have to call you back. And they were like, well, what does that mean? And she was like, well, that's kind of our code saying that Alicia is in the room. So I knew that Alicia was in the room with him. And the detectives are like, so you know for a fact, based off of y'all conversation, that she was up and in the room with him 10 minutes before he was dead. So the cops are like, okay, this changes things a little bit. If that's the code word, then Alicia then Alicia really does know that he was cheating and she heard right before the shooting happened. So could this mean she is the shooter? Could she have lost it and decided, fuck this shit, this is the end? So right now these are all theories. They're bouncing around, but they still have the issue of the bullet casings outside the door. So they're like, let's go rework the crime scene. They go back, they rework it. They're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, certain things are looking real suspicious. Eyes are locking in on Alicia. Again, all we have is circumstantial shit. We're not really ready to make a move. By the end of June, Alicia sells her house. But she does not lose touch with this murder investigation. She says that she would show up at the police department asking questions. Where are you at in investigation? You figured out what's going on? I haven't heard anything. What you got? We gonna solve this case or not? Like, come on. But Brian's family, who used to be so close to Alicia, they are feeling very weird. They're getting weird, weird energy. Okay? They're like, she's acting colder. He was like, I'm just seeing a different side of her. And this is not the girl who my family has known and loved. He's seeing this mean streak that Brian used to talk about. And he's like, all I'm trying to do is help her. He said, the calls stopped. When you reached out to her, you didn't get a return. She was just kind of standoffish. Pushing back, resisting everything I did. You know, once you start to put that down in your head, your mind starts to run, right? So they're like, listen, you know, they said that Alicia went by her stepdad's pharmacy the day of. And 
Willie Sr., his dad is like, you know, I've known her. She said she occasionally gets some medicine from her stepdad's pharmacy. So now they're like, I think that she drugged them kids so that they would stay asleep during the murder. And that's given premeditation. Right. Because that's not melatonin. You know what I'm saying? That's Mm -hmm. drugs. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and that's a hefty that's a hefty finger to point at somebody. It is. So now Maria Smith, this is the cousin that Alicia was on the phone with the night of the murder. And she was like, before I got ready to leave the house the night of the murder, when everybody was over there, she said, I tried to wake them up, touching them, kind of pushing and calling their names. No response. And she was like, this was unusual. Even another family member says them children was drugged. I have no doubt about that. She says, I babysat them, and I know they sleep in habits. They said, like, if you would walk in the room sometimes, you'd be too loud and it'd wake these kids up. So they're like, so you heard pop, pop, pop. The alarm was blaring. You got 50-lamb folks up in your house, and these kids still sleep? How'd that happen? The one who she was on the phone with was like, I was just on the phone with you like an hour before all of this, and them kids was up. I could hear them through the phone. And now they so knocked out. They so dog tired. Next, they pulled Brian and Alicia's financial records. And turns out that Alicia has two life insurance policies out on Brian. She gets paid out for the $250,000 um, settlement because, you know, at this point, cops have not named her as a person of interest. They do a deep dive background check and it's it's like, okay, there's a 45 caliber gun that's supposed to be here that nobody can find. We not only have the holster for it, but we have it that it's registered to his name. So we know it's supposed to be here, right? Then on August 3rd, 2005, the gunshot residue test finally come back and it confirmed that Alicia had a single particle of gunshot residue on the back of her left hand. And they're all like, well, it's only going to get in the back of your hand if you come into close contact with the weapon. They said one of three things had to happen. You shot the weapon, you held the weapon, or you touched him and the residue rubbed off on you. But they were like, what way were you touching him that it only went to the back of your hand? Like, were you stroking him with the back of your hand? You know what I mean? So I mean, it's one particle. It's one particle. So it's the morning of March 8th. Alicia's getting dressed, getting her kids dressed. She heads to work. She's living her new life without her husband. Once she gets to work, she gets a call from her attorney. He says, well, I heard they have a warrant out for your arrest. And she's like, excuse me, what? She's like, her adrenaline starts pumping. And she's like, it's got to be a joke, right? Because what the fuck you mean I'm about to get arrested? He's like, yeah, you are now a suspect. They feel like they have enough evidence on you. They're arresting you. And she's like, oh, my fucking God. Well, you know, I, I can't do that. I can't get arrested in front of my kids. So is there any way that we can do this where I don't get arrested in front of my kids? So the attorney sets up an appointment for her to go turn herself in. And on March 8, 2005, she is arrested and charged with first-degree murder. And now some sources are saying that she's now using this life insurance policy to pay for her lawyers to help get her out of this situation. I mean, I would. And would. That's the type of money I need. 
right now. <laughs> so she turns herself in. She is placed under arrest. She goes in front of the judge, pleads not guilty, and she is given a $60,000. And she is out on bond. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial. Her trial begins on January 3rd, 2007, and the Hines County District Attorney, Faye Peterson, tries this case. Now, the prosecutors... One, his name was Stanley Anderson, and there also was a woman, Rebecca Mansell. They did jury selection, and the jury selection was six men, six women. They said, quote, almost evenly split on race. And so it's time to really get things started in the courtroom. The prosecution's theory was this. Alicia found out about Brian's little mistress, found out about the baby that he was supposed to have, and she decided that she was going to take out a life insurance policy on him. And as soon as she saw him and heard him on the phone with the mistress, she had enough. So she took out the gun and she shot him there. They said that the main reason that they thought Alicia was guilty was because of what she told the police, right? She said that she heard popping sounds and then the alarm went off. But that just doesn't make sense, right? Because if somebody broke into the home, then you would hear the alarm and then the popping sounds. You're trying to tell me that somebody followed Brian into the home, hid while he turned on the alarm, killed him and then ran away? That just doesn't seem likely, right? So they say that she shot Brian and opened the door to make it look like somebody else did made it seem like a home intrusion now they continued this theory by saying that she was grieving but it was kind of fake grief and and she was faking her theatrics of grief so that she wasn't questioned immediately by police however she came in six days later which is plenty of time for you to get your story straight also pointing out that the police dropped the ball by not searching her overnight bag that she took from the home, giving her plenty of time to get rid of the murder weapon. And they said, listen, jury, this is simple. Two motives are working here simultaneously, a secret woman and a nice insurance policy. They decided to put Robbie Rayford on the stand. And I just like, ugh. Imagine your husband, ex-lover, got to be on the stand in front of you. I know, right? For and your you murder trial. Keep it together. And you got to keep it together. Before the jury says that you look like a cold-hearted bitch grimacing over there. Okay. And Robbie is up there, girl, and she is saying, listen, Brian and I, we are soulmates. We, that was my soulmate. About her man's. Who, girl? Yeah, y'all might as well have to cart me off. I just, look, lock me up. Because I'm about Girl, to do it again. you get to going, you get to going. Okay. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> but still. So Robbie is up there saying that they're soulmates, talking about what her version of events that happened that night from her side of the cell phone, as well as talking about her little code that they have for him to get off the phone when Alicia is in the room. And imagine sitting there and being like, as many times as this nigga has been on the phone and he's like, oh, let me call you back because I'm there. And I'm thinking that it's because he wants to give me his attention, but really he's getting off the phone with that bitch. Girl, I'm going down a rabbit hole that ain't got nothing to do with me. They ask her again about the code and she's like, yes, that's the code. So I know that the wife is in the room. Cell phone records show that their call ended around 11, 15 p.m., 
which is very close to the time that Alicia said that she was awakened by the popping sounds. Police got up and they testified that they found a bullet that was lodged into the wall, which to them means that the shooter was very inexperienced. And I think on Sisuzuki, we've we've seen experienced shooters, like when there are police offenders and they hit their target every single time. And we've also seen inexperienced shooters that shoot from, even if it's point blank range, they can still miss, right? So here it is. Alicia is an inexperienced shooter. Sounds like it's adding up a little bit. They also talk about the location of Brian's shots. Remember, he was shot in multiple places, but one location was in the groin area. And they were like, "Mm, it's giving personal. It's giving, I'm gonna shoot your dick off. It's giving spurn lover. And they're just like, think about it, you know? Like, who would shoot a man's dick off? His dick wasn't shot off. All right. Anyways, um, the crime scene investigators also testified that the bullet casings were found outside of the house and some of them were near the door and just about how that does not make sense because if they were found outside, there would be blood in that area. He was shot with a 45, not a little, not a little poo-poo gun. Poo-poo guns can still kill you, but he was shot with a gun that has a little bit of You're gonna bleed immediately. Their theory was that when Alicia went to go and open the door to set the alarm, she tossed the bullet casings out to try and set up the scene. And then the big piece of evidence, the ballistics analyst came back and testified about that speck of gun residue found on the back of Alicia's right hand. Now, prosecutors argued that because of this piece of gun residue, that means that Alicia had to have fired the weapon or at least been in close proximity of the weapon. The defense is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Gun residue can be transferred, and the victim is also going to have gun residue on him. She was touching her husband, so of course there would be some type of residue on her because she touched him. And the prosecutors are like, okay, if she touched them, then why was there no gun residue on the palm of her hand? Why was it only on the back of it? And the defense is like, listen, if she would have shot that gun, the gun residue wouldn't have just been on the back of her hand. It would have been up her arms. It would have been on her hair. Like gun residue fires. When they say smoking gun, the gun literally smokes. It would be all over her, not just in one little speck on the back of her hand. It's just not, yes, there's gun residue, but the amount is just not seeming likely with this case. Brian's brother also testifies talking about how security conscious Brian was and that he would never leave a door open that late at night. And even his dad couldn't show up unannounced. Talked about a day his dad showed up at uh, Brian's house and Brian pretended to be asleep. Actually got up, looked, saw it was his dad, said this nigga ain't called me, went back to bed, woke up later, saw his dad was sitting out in the truck still waiting on him to come. He said, Brian, don't play that. Goes on to talk about the night of the murder, and he talks about how they went to Olive Garden. They watched Walking Tall, and Brian drops him off, says, I'll talk to you tomorrow. The prosecutors, they say that in the statement that Alicia gives to the police, she told them that she was calling Brian earlier in the night to see when he would be home. And it started off as, when you coming home, honey? But then she said, quote, I asked him real nice, when are you coming home? And the prosecution's like, that's weird to describe it because... Most people would just say, I asked them. And so they're like, Alicia must be getting more frustrated when Brian refuses to answer her texts or calls, which, I mean, is she allowed? Answer my fucking texts and calls. Right. And I asked real nice, too, even when I'm frustrated. And, and exactly. she and I'm admitted tell that somebody, they were going through. A, and I said it nicely because everybody right. want to say it. And she admitted they're going through a rough patch. 
Right. Everybody says that I'm so mean. In the end, the prosecutors are like, this ain't even a crime of passion. This is a crime of greed. Alicia was tired of Brian's cheating and wanted the insurance money. And they also argued that Alicia's theory didn't make sense or the defense's theory because Brian could not have been shot outside the door because there's no blood outside the door. So John Collette, he's Alicia's attorney. They presented the theory that Alicia was confused and distressed the first time she gave her statement to police. And it's more plausible that Brian was murdered by a jealous husband or boyfriend from one of his many lovers. The defense mentioned the name of a married woman who worked with Brian, whom he was having an affair with, and her husband found out. And they said for a while they were a prime suspect. Those people didn't even make it to the witness box. The defense was adamant that Alicia was asleep when Bryant got shot. They said Brian had a very hectic schedule. She didn't wait up for him. And this particular night, she was home being my mom. He was out with his brother. It's not weird, you know? Don't make it something that it's not. Now, she did not get a chance to testify at this trial, but her attorneys did express that at the time of his murder, she did not think that he was cheating. On January 9, 2007, the defense and the prosecution give their closing arguments. The jury goes to deliberate for about two hours, and they come back and they find her guilty. The following morning, she was sentenced, and she was sentenced with life in prison for the murder. Now, immediately, they got ready for appeals because Alicia just could not believe that not only was she on trial to begin with for her husband's murder, but that she was even found guilty. She reminisced and she was just like that she grew up with a pretty sheltered life like she'd never really got in trouble she didn't have to deal with the justice system she didn't have a get tickets or anything like that she was like all I just know is that when you get in trouble they take your life away and they give you an outfit that basically says that you're a convict on the back of it and that you're property of the state and she's like and now I'm sitting here and I'm humiliated I'm degraded I'm it's hurtful because it's saying that I'm property of the state and I didn't do anything wrong and it's just crazy how this system that I believed in or never really got involved in all of a sudden decided the rest of my life and that I was going to be there for the rest of my life or at least the next 30 years. She appeals the decision and the prosecutor that he was actually being racist and that there were not a lot of black women on the jury, that that was one of the main things that they nixed off when they were doing jury selections. Now, Alicia sat in prison for two months while she was waiting for the trial judge to overturn the conviction. At this point, something like this being overturned had not been seen in the state of Mississippi. And you darn sure not going to see it for a black person, right? They said that the jury selection was extremely discriminatory and that a lot of times the prosecutor dismissed prospective black jurors. Now, the prosecutor stand, he's like, I'm a black man. I got a black mama. I got a black wife. I, what are you talking about me being racist? Like, at the end of the day, I'm doing my job. And he, I saw an interview where he literally laughed. He was like, I just couldn't believe that this woman was calling me racist because she wasn't getting black women when I, like, I have no nothing against black women or putting them on trial. A miracle happened, and she was granted a new trial because of the claims of racial discrimination in the jury selection. And remember, we said earlier that people say that it was fairly, that was pretty even on race. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means there was like six white, six black. Yes. I don't know <laughs> if that means, that, it says fairly even, right? But does that mean that there were 
like a couple I think of it other, was like one, uh, like a, 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 a six to eight. But also that just, that doesn't necessarily mean black and white. Like there are plenty of other races mm, in the state of Mississippi. In Jackson, Mississippi. Yes, in Jackson, Mississippi. It just wasn't heard of. And people were really shocked that she was granted a new trial because a lot of people did not agree that there was any type of racial discrimination that was happening. But she was granted a new trial. And because she was granted a new trial, she was also granted bond. She was released on a hundred and fifty thousand bond pending her new trial. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial, bitch. Take that shit to trial. She's waiting for her new trial, and the first thing that comes up is there is a civil lawsuit with the MetLife policy. Remember, Alicia was paid out that MetLife policy, and rumor has it that she used some of it for her legal fees, and basically they were saying if she was found guilty, you know, you can't be awarded the money. So, that money ended up being paid out again to Brian's parents. Brian's parents then decided to file a civil suit against Alicia for $20 million for a wrongful death. Now, their gut was saying that she had something to do with his death, but on the outside, they were like, we know her. We love her. We've accepted her into our family. There's no way that she would be a part of something like this. We just didn't want to believe it. But the more and more evidence came out, we we had to start trusting our guts. Now, not much came of that case. Turns out it was dismissed with prejudice and his parents had to kind of eat that. Now, the second trial began on November 5th. 2007 and this jury was consisted mostly of black women black lady courtroom black lady courtroom the prosecution presented the same evidence at the trial but the mistress robbie the soulmate she gets up and she does her statement again but she changed her statements just a itty bitty bit she said that they had their code i'm gonna call you back and she said that she asked is she in a room and he responded, yes, she is. Now, this detail may seem minor, but they really honed in on her. Why are you changing these details even ever so slightly? And she kind of suggested, didn't outright say it, that she changed her statement because she wanted to make sure that Alicia went down and went to jail. That's not a direct quote. That's what she was hinting at. The prosecutors, they question the crime scene investigators. And he's asking, did you look on the floor for blood spatter? Yes, I did. Did you look on the wall? Yes. The ceiling? Yes. You see any blood? None at all. Was there any blood or droplets anywhere around the body of Brian Hughes other than underneath his body? No. No, there wasn't. They go on to interview the medical examiner who said there were six bullet wounds on the victim. And he pointed out that, you know, again, this is not a skilled person doing this. Lawyer says, so you think the person's inexperienced? He says, you have multiple pistol trajectories, different angles. There's only one lethal shot out of the six. And they appear to be inflicted in close proximity to each other. It's not a very good shooting in my book. They interview one of Brian's co-workers. A co-worker who says he did, in fact, see a 45 caliber gun in their house just a year before the murder. Lawyer says, do you know him to have any handguns? Yes, I do. What type of gun? A 45. You know where he kept it? One time I saw it on the kitchen up in the higher cabinet. You saw it with your own eyes? Yes, yes, I did. 
They talk to cousin Maria Smith, the girl who she was on the phone with the night of. She testifies about how she can hear the kids. The lawyer says, did you hear him in the background? Yes, sir. What were they doing? It sounded like they were playing. Oh, but just an hour later, they're in, a 40, uh, they're in such a deep sleep that the sound of a 45 caliber wouldn't wake them up. Not the family members, not the crime scene investigators, nobody. And his cousin is like, yeah, I'm suspicious too. So the prosecution, they're laying it on. They're lining up all these facts. They're feeling confident, right? But Alicia has a secret weapon this time. This time, she's hired Mr. Dennis Sweet to come and help out with her defense team. Dennis is like, let me tell y'all a few things that y'all got wrong the first time. One, y'all got multiple people coming up in this house. Hey, let's talk about a contaminated crime scene. He put the cops on the stands and he said, did you handle this crime scene correctly? No, we did not. Did you follow the protocol that you were supposed to follow? No, we did not. Did you follow the chain of custody that you were supposed to follow? No, we did not. All right, I'm just checking. So anybody could have put those shell casings outside the house. Anybody could have came in there and grabbed the gun. Anybody could have did this, right? Just checking. Point number two, Brian's got multiple lovers. And these lovers got men's. Alicia not the only woman who scorned here. And with y'all loose-ass crime scene, a nigga could have been there that night. Y'all wouldn't even fucking know because everybody was invited to the party. Number three, these skid marks. I see that y'all got pictures of them, but what came of it? Dennis went to every single neighbor's house and knocked on their door asking them for information about the case. And it turns out not one, but two of them heard the popping sound, then heard a car skid off. They both heard it within seconds of each other. Why was that not in the notes? We just want to ignore that? Like, that's not a crucial part of what's going on here? Number four, he puts a ballistic expert on the stand who says that Alicia could have easily gotten gunpowder residue on her hand from coming in contact with her husband's body. He said, y'all found trace residue, which, which he stated was useless as meaningful evidence and was at best explained by transference, meaning she touched her husband. He says, if you touch something that has thousands of particles, yes, it is possible that one will land on you. The expert confirms this. So midway through the trial, the prosecution is seeming like they're getting a little bit nervous and they decide to offer Alicia a deal. They say, listen, you plead guilty to manslaughter. You're not going to get any more than 10 years. She said the deal was very tempting. She knew what prison was like and she's not going to get another trial. Like you either get, take this manslaughter charge or you still gamble with your life. And if she gets found guilty, she's going to be in there for life. And maybe this time she won't have the possibility of parole like she did the first time. Like you're really taking a gamble. But she was just like, it just pained me. Like I couldn't say that I did something that I know that I didn't do. And I know I didn't hurt Brian. And I'm not going to admit that I did to anybody because I didn't. So she decided to turn down the deal, which, whew. You don't went for it. I, I would have heavily considered. It's a tempting deal. Like she said, it's a tempting deal, especially when you know that your life is really on the line. Now, they did decline the deal, like I said, and they decided that they were really going to challenge this whole insurance money. And they were like, why kill him for insurance? You know, it just doesn't add up. And so they ended up calling to the stand 
the insurance agent that sold Brian and Alicia their insurance policy. And the insurance agent comes onto the stand and she said that she wrote the insurance policy up for them and that it was, you know, the amount of the insurance policy, like, honestly, it was a prudent amount. Like, it was just enough to cover the family if Alicia or Brian died. It wasn't crazy. It's not a half a million dollar policy. It's nothing to really write home about. Definitely not something to murder over, right? The lawyer says, so was the amount based on your recommendation? And she says, yes, it was my recommendation. And they were like, okay, so why did you make that recommendation? And she does her insurance thing. She's like, I just base it off of what their needs would be. If something were to happen to one of them, how would they be able to supplement the income of one? So what's that telling the jury? And he also goes on to discuss, like, he says... The prosecution is trying to say she's greedy and did this for a life insurance policy. He said, Alicia's not a money-driven person because he said that Alicia, she had quit teaching to become an insurance agent, and then she ended up quitting her insurance agent job to go back to teaching. He was like, people don't teach for money. If she wanted money, that would not be what she's doing with her life. And she said that, too. She was like, you have to love it. Like, it's not something that is—you don't make a whole heap of money being a teacher. You're definitely overworked and underpaid. The jury goes out and they start to deliberate. After two hours of deliberation, the jury come back and they say, we, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. When they said this, she screamed. Everybody behind her defense table, they were screaming. They hugged each other. She said, I didn't know what they said after that. I know they said some legal jargon after that, but I was not listening. I could not. I was just sitting there screaming and thanking God like finally somebody hears what I'm saying like I didn't do anything to my husband and of course like Alicia and her attorneys they're overjoyed like this is amazing news and Alicia later on said she that she wanted to just thank the jury thank her attorneys and she's very happy because her attorneys really were behind her 100 percent and her attorneys later on said in an interview that there is absolutely no proof that she shot her husband. And the defense, they still say that whoever killed Brian is still out there. And Alicia will never be free until that person is caught. And that's true because they always going to point the finger at you until I find who actually did it. They always going to think it's you. Now, the prosecution said it is very unfortunate when there are times that killers go free. And this is one of those times. If you ask Alicia, she says that the real tragedy is that all this time they've been pursuing her for all of these years, and the person that actually killed Brian is still out there. If you ask Brian's family, they still believe that Alicia did it. Some are being a little bit more optimistic and have decided to just say, you know what, at the end of the day, whoever was the one that pulled that trigger, they may not have to answer to the court of law, but they will have a higher power to answer to, and judgment day is coming. And that is the story of Alicia Hughes. Oh, glory. All right, y'all. It's time for... Well, I'm not black. I'm OJ. I didn't do it, but if I did, this is how I would have got away with it. I don't know, child. I guess she did it. She got away with it. Do you think she did it? I think that if she did it, All the blame lies within the investigators who handled this. Because Mm -hmm. if y'all didn't fuck it up, there wouldn't be a question 
That's a civil suit that the family should go for. Right. Mm -hmm. Tampering that crime scene and letting everybody in. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, even me, like, as the mother, like, I want to be in there, but technically I'm not allowed in there. Exactly. Don't let nobody in that bitch. You know, I think it poses the question, how do you respect the victims, but also get, you know, what you need from the investigation? Because he was like, oh, we're letting her grieve, da-da-da-da. I hear all that, but the best thing that you can do for me is handle this case correctly so that there is no reasonable doubt later. Right. Because if you could have caught something in that moment, that would have cleared me, but instead you let everybody up in that house, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So th- that was not my best interest. That was not what I needed. What I needed was a protocol to be followed if she didn't do it. If she did do it. It very well could be the truth that she did premeditate it, have on gloves, and her taking off those gloves was the reason that she got that gun residue on the back of her hands. Because you know how sometimes you take mm-hmm. gloves off and you take off one and use the other one? Mm-hmm. Like, that very well could be the case. And she very well—she could have absolutely done this. There were so many things that went wrong throughout the investigation— that you have to say that there is reasonable doubt. There is. Like, at this point, she's not getting past me because there's reasonable doubt. I think it could have been some of the other niggas. I think the tire skid marks is very suspicious. I think her not remembering the alarm code is possible. Like, I yeah. don't think she thought, oh, I'm going to just let the alarm ring until they call me, and then I'm going to start acting frantic. And everything just happened to work out for her. She was able to sneak past and do like it's just a whole lot. Y'all saying that she even as little as not checking her overnight bag before she left. Like that seems like police work one on one. Right. And y'all could have checked it and everybody would have known for sure if there was a gun in there or not. And see, she's saying that she heard he got off the phone at eleven fifteen. She heard pop, pop, pop at eleven twenty. 11.26, the cops was there. So she has less than 15 minutes upon his arrival from the house, right, to shoot him, to stage the crime scene, to get the waterworks ready and prepare and to hide the gun fast enough so that it, when the investigators get there, they did not take long to get there. The cousin is saying that the kids were up with at 10 and then they was clocked out. He didn't answer her text messages as to when he would be home. So how did she know when to drug him? If she left him up that late, maybe they just tired themselves the fuck out. They're three and four mm-hmm. years old. Did they get a nap that day? To sleep, they do go to sleep. Yeah, they might not have gotten a nap that, that day, which would make them sleep harder. Also, who's to say that it wasn't one of those husbands or it wasn't that husband? Because you could have very well been outside of one of your mistress's house. They nigga come and follow you because they see you outside of their house and followed you home. It's not crazy that somebody followed you because you're on the phone. You're distracted. Say he came up under the um, under the garage door with you. That's heard of. It could even be possible that you came in carrying takeout. So it is very possible that he opened the door, put the food on the table, came back and closed the door and locked the door and put the alarm on. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. All these little intricacies could have happened. And so now we get to play the who did it. This maybe this happened, maybe that happened because the crime scene was that tampered with. They didn't handle it well. There's too much doubt. I'm not sold on anybody's theory. I don't think she belongs in jail behind this. You haven't given me enough. Yeah, it's just, it's too much reasonable doubt. And I'm not saying that she didn't do it. I'm not saying that she very well could have done it. I'm saying you didn't prove it. But I am saying, right, I'm saying y'all didn't prove it. That's what I think a lot of people do not understand about the court of law. And like, it really pisses me off when there's a lot of viral cases and people that are on trial, people being sentenced. 
and it becomes so popular in the media because a lot of people just don't understand the court system. Hell, we figure out something new about the court system every single time we get on the show. We are not investigative journalists and we did not go to school for law or anything like that. So we're learning as well. But people don't understand that murderers really do get off Mm -hmm. all the time because of reasonable doubt. And innocent people do go to prison because reasonable doubt was not found. People can go to prison and what seems like is one thing, but they really have a whole host of charges behind them. So it's it's so many intricacies in the judicial system that if you don't know how to play the game from a professional standpoint, like even Alicia, she was like, I didn't know how to play the game. So she made sure that she had a good team. If you don't know how to have a good team behind you, because you it's you can't play this game on your own. This legal system is not something that you want to do on your own because it can really one speck of reasonable doubt can keep a murderer on the street Mm -hmm. and imposing enough facts can keep an innocent person in prison. Those are my closing thoughts. Parole or no parole? I guess we already did it because there's reasonable doubt for me. Yeah. And she was smart getting a whole bunch of black women because Mm -hmm. then you get to see the mistress on stage. And I know you sitting there looking at this mistress like, girl, bold. We are soulmates, bitch. Ooh, right. Let me stop. I'm getting mad about something that ain't my business. Getting hot. (laughs) All right. That's the end of our show. Yeah? Did I do it? Mm. Is that our show? Just got to read some reviews? Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Let's get out of here. All right, y'all. Let's read some reviews. If you want to leave us a review, you can anywhere. Wherever you're listening right now, go see if there's an option to leave us a review. If not, no worries. You can rate us. You can tell a friend. You can do anything to get word out about our little itty-bitty podcast. You have a review, friend? I do. This one says full circle. I started listening to podcasts in 2004 and came across the inaugural episode of Another Round. Stay with me here. At that time, true crime was all the rave, but it seemed like all the hosts were melanin deficient. Immediately, I wrote off the whole genre. Well, one day last year, 2022, Tracy Clayton, one of the hosts of Another Round, tweeted about a black girl hosted true crime podcast, this one, of course, and raved about it. I take her recommendation seriously and gave it a try. Boom. My love for Sisters Who Kill began. Thank you, Mariah and Taz, for sharing your gift of storytelling and, and putting back on my love for true crime. Used to be crazy about Snapped and Discovery ID back in college. Shout out to the HBCUs. I share Sisters Who Kill with so many people, and it's the only podcast my chatty husband won't talk over. Keep them coming. <laughs> <laughs> he trying to just learn the skills. <laughs> He's like, listen, if I be quiet, then maybe she won't remember that she mad at me. I, too, love another round, and I'm... And I'm a fan of Tracy Clayton, so really love that full circle moment. All right. This one is from Lori Baby. Lori says, I'm so late to the party. I'm from Chicago, Illinois, in parentheses, no S, y'all. Yes, it is. I listen to this podcast every day, and I'm not fully caught up, but I'm loving what I hear so far. I truly appreciate the research and depth that you ladies put into each case. I'm a true crime junkie, and this podcast feeds my addiction. Keep up the amazing work from Chicago, Illinois. Thank you. And she gave us four stars, and I'm trying to figure out, did you give me four stars because I put S on the end of Illinois? It's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> I hate when we get a review and it'd be like, you guys are the best. And it'd be one star. I'd be like, uh, you hit the wrong fucking button. You you just fat fingered it a little bit. Like this one's four stars. And I feel like you put four stars because I put, it's a joke. I know that Chicago, Illinois is Chicago, Illinois, but I'm going to say Illinois because I'm just a petty bitch. Like, uh, 
I'm just petty. <laughs> Girl, all right. Now, we have go one, back two, three episodes. Anyways, if you want to keep up with us, you can. Follow us on Instagram, Sisters Who Kill Pod. Follow us on TikTok, Sisters Who Kill Podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Sisters Who Kill. Facebook, the public page is Sisters Who Kill Podcast. There is a private discussion group. Be nice. Answer the questions to get in. Anything else, friend? We will be at the Podcast Movement Conference in Denver. August 21st through 23rd. Well, actually, we'll be on a panel on the 23rd. So that's the most important day of this conference. But yeah, if you're looking to maybe run into us, run into us there. Yeah. Shout out to Spotify for sponsoring us to go and speak. Other than that, talk to us. We talk back. Bye. Bye.